Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Welcome to Back From The Borderline. Today, we're going to be talking about people with big feelings, big emotions, and how this relates to our jobs, work, creativity, and whether it's possible to actually do what you love and get paid for it? Or is work just something we have to do to pay our bills until we inevitably die? (laughs) That's a pretty depressing picture to paint, but I think it's one that many of us have been sold as children. As Most of you know who are longtime listeners of the podcast. I allow you to reach out and send me voicemails. And I received a voicemail that I wanted to play and inspired this episode. So let's take a listen. What's up, Molly? My name is Cass. I'm 26. I'm calling from Texas. I really just wanted to see if you had any thoughts or insights or advice regarding navigating career paths when you identify with borderline traits, because I think everyone, whether they identify with those traits or not, you know, is at risk of tying their self-worth to their work. But when you add that extra vulnerability that comes from fear of rejection, lack of identity, all of that, for me, it just makes it so unmanageable. Um, And, you know, I have like a creative background. My strength is writing. I went to school for it. I worked for a magazine. But I am now stuck in this cycle of retail work because <laughs> because I just don't give a shit about retail work. And it's easier to come back from a day of, oh, I wrung somebody up wrong versus, you know, I put something out there and it didn't get instant positive feedback. Um, my partner right now is willing to take on the brunt of supporting us so that I can really stretch my creative side and see if I can make writing work for us. But I almost I almost don't want that opportunity because it paralyzes me. I'm, I'm terrified of it. Um, you know, and so I, I know that you and Zaz both have creative sides and have probably felt similarly. And so I just wanted to see, you know, what your thoughts were on it, how to navigate more personal work that means something when you have borderline traits. Um, thank you for everything you do. You are so important to so many people and I hope you have a great day. And now here is another work-related voicemail from Bella. Hi, Molly. I'm Bella, and I'm from Australia. I just want to say thank you so much for creating these podcasts because I discovered BPD, and one of the first things I did was find you on Spotify, and it's been very helpful having you navigate um, this journey with me. Um I am going through a breakup and I'm in a very deep rebirth and I have a new job 
um, that I'm I've never had experience in this role before, and my impulsivity and my struggle to concentrate, and I'm very flighty. That's affecting my work performance, and I know that that's a symptom. The symptoms of BPD is this sort of flightiness, this impulsivity, this lack of focus, attention to detail, and yeah, I just wanted to know what your、um, thoughts on that are, and how I can really help and not spiral into you know, oh well, you've lost jobs in the past because of this, and you know, just reinforcing all of that narrative.、Um, yeah, I'm I'm getting better at that. So anyway, our last. Voicemail that is job and work related is from Monica. So let's take a listen to that one. Hi Molly, my name is Monica, and I've been listening to your podcast for some time now.、Um, the way I would describe it is coming out of the desert and finding like the nicest, freshest glass of water.、Um, it, your your research, knowledge,、um, <clears throat> and guidance has just been so helpful.、Um, And you're like such a trailblazer for us, and I really appreciate、um, you know everything you've done、um, for this community.、Um, my question to you is in regards to job loss、um, and just like emotional regulation in the workplace, and kind of maybe you know your advice, wisdom, knowledge, or anything on this topic, and how maybe to prevent you know things from happening where they just boil over and you know you quit abruptly or You know, just little things to do day to day, or even you know before you get a job,、um, to really help you be more successful. Thanks so much. Thank you to Cass, Monica, and Bella for these voicemails. I've received quite a few DMs, emails, and voicemails about. Navigating the workplace and making a living when you are a person with big feelings, when you struggle to put space between your feelings and your reactions, and let's face it, work is a triggering environment. It brings up. Issues with authority. If you're someone who struggles with complex trauma or symptoms of what is known as BPD, emotion dysregulation, if you grew up in an environment where there were a lot of authoritative caregivers that were giving you instructions that you really didn't think made sense. I think that a lot of times work environments can be almost emotional flashback material without us being even conscious of it. Especially for those of us who are women, if you're reporting into male bosses who might feel aggressive, or even if they don't intend to be that way, it can almost send you spiraling because without being conscious of it. You might be reliving something in your childhood, and work environments can also bring up other triggering material. For example, I grew up not 
really fitting in. I tried so hard to be part of the popular crowd and I was like almost like on the fringe of it, but I always felt like I was the one who never really got invited because I was probably pretty annoying. I was really wanted people to like me. I got really caught up in gossiping and I'm not sure if I would have wanted to hang out with me much as a teenager too. I was really emotional. I took everything really personally and teenagers don't have that nuanced understanding of life and they haven't developed that deep enough level of self-compassion to understand that sometimes people's annoying behaviors that push others away are actually coming from trauma. Teenagers are very blunt and just like, we don't like that. (laughs) And so I struggled a lot as a teenager. I wanted to fit in. I always felt like people were talking about me behind my back and oftentimes it turned out to be true. (laughs) And so work environments as I've grown up are can be triggering especially when I worked in the office now that I'm working remotely I find that I struggle a lot less with this but working in the office I always felt like who am I going to go to lunch with I felt awkward if no one was talking to me I struggled with catty bitchy behavior in certain jobs I was in beauty school for a period of time and that was like hell on earth because It was just a drama-filled environment. Then I worked in fashion for a bit, and that was a whole nother level. And so these two things, authority figures, those issues can pop up with work. Then the kind of cliquish behavior of wanting the approval from other people, that can come up. And it's like school, right? You're forced into an environment where you have to get along with a bunch of fucking people that you're just thrown in with and taking the orders of a bunch of adults who are probably telling you to do homework and a bunch of shit that you know you're never going to use again. And I think those of us who identify with symptoms of some of these quote-unquote disorders are just highly sensitive, highly creative people, highly intuitive people who saw very clearly canaries in the coal mine who are going, this doesn't make sense. So it's no surprise that as we grow up, we still struggle to be okay in these environments. Not only that, we have to seem productive, right? Tech companies now are actually installing programs in employees' computers that monitor how often their mouse is moving. There are even programs that are taking pictures of people every 10 minutes through their webcam to make sure they're still sitting at their computer and being productive. Now, I don't know about you, but I worked in offices for a good part of my early career. And office work is a lot of sitting around and staring into the abyss, punctuated with short bursts of productivity. And then you're spending maybe an hour if you're lucky or more in the morning and the evening commuting back and forth. And I repeat again, those of us who are intuitive, sensitive, creative people being forced into these really structured, authoritative, productivity-based, box-ticking environments, 
with a bunch of people that we maybe don't really even get along with, it's soul-destroying feeling. And I just want to validate anyone who's feeling that way. It's okay to feel that way. And the dream that we all have is to do something that we don't hate doing. You hear that phrase, do what you love, do what you love. It's almost become like, think positive thoughts, love yourself. It's these sayings that you hear all the time and you sort of roll your eyes at because you hear other people say you should do what you love. Work should be something that you enjoy and then it doesn't feel like work. It almost feels impossible sometimes, especially when you feel like you're stuck in a job that doesn't give you those feelings. When you wonder to yourself, am I just going to be working until I until I almost die at this point? Some people don't even have health insurance or any hope for retirement right now. And it can feel so depressing. So how could we not feel down about work? How could those of us that are wired the way my listeners are not struggle when it comes to paying for our bills, doing what we love, struggling with the capitalistic, analytics-driven culture that we're living in right now. Everything is based upon getting numbers to move up, little graphs to go up and down. And it's almost like doing something that fills our cup and gives back to humanity and our families and ourselves and our communities is secondary. In her voicemail, Bella said she has a new job and she's really beating herself up in this voicemail saying, how can I, almost it feels like you're saying, Bella, like how can I force myself to like this job? I know I'm flighty. I lack an attention to detail. I don't know what job you're doing, but do you enjoy what you're doing? And Monica, she's talking about how a recent job loss is causing her to reflect on her emotion regulation in the workplace and how to prevent things from happening where she feels like she boils over and just quits abruptly. I've absolutely been there. More so in probably my early 20s when I was just getting used to the work environment. And as many of you know, I, I work a full-time job remotely in the tech space and I have been at the same job for multiple years now, very stable. I really love the people that I work with and I still struggle with emotion regulation in the workplace and it's difficult. I take things really personally still. I get thrown off my rocker still. I make stories up in my head about when people don't respond to my instant messages or emails 
or I read between the lines of just a sentence someone will send me and if there's no emoji, I'm spiraling thinking they hate me. All this stuff still happens. But what I've gotten better at is not making permanent decisions on temporary emotions and practicing the skill that we've talked about so often on this podcast where we do our best to zoom out and see things from a higher perspective. I'm constantly reminding myself when it comes to work the two things really. One is that 99% of the time, it's not about me. So if I'm caught in some kind of thought loop where I'm convinced that people are mad at me, they're leaving me out, they're discounting my ideas, whatever story or narrative I might be trying to tell myself, I try to put myself in the other person's shoes, the person who I'm making this narrative about and thinking, they are probably so busy, they're not even thinking about me. The second thing I try to remind myself is that I think and remember all of the things that I was really upset with about even just a few weeks ago or that maybe got me dysregulated at work, they're a zero out of 10 importance. So when I find myself pulled into a moment of dysregulation at work now, I try to remind myself that. Molly, remember the last time this happened? You zoomed out and it also meant nothing a few weeks from now. Do you really want to let this steal your emotional and mental energy right now? Or do you want to take a different path? So that really, really helps me and I hope that it might help you listening as well another thing gossiping at work or getting caught into a circle of people at work that hate what they do and hate their jobs and so you all start kind of becoming this band of negative nancy's and it can be really cathartic to find other people at work that hate the the job and kind of want to complain to you but if you've ever taken part in this kind of dynamic at a job you know how absorbing it can be you know how it can kind of start taking over your life and even your time outside of work the best thing you can do is to not take part in these gossiping negative circle jerk of sadness dynamics in the job that you're in and if you already are in it It's good to start taking slow but sure steps away from that group that you may be part of. Because at the end of the day, a few things can happen here. You might be overheard, your trust might be betrayed, and you could lose your job, worst case scenario. But then, even if you aren't caught, you're just expending so much energy hating what you're doing instead of trying to think of what you'd rather be doing and making a plan to try and do that. So many of us spend so much time thinking about how much we fucking hate our jobs and it's not time well spent. The moment you clock out for the day The moment you leave the office, the moment you're done with your shift, whatever it is that you do, that's time for you. Are you carrying 
your work-related hatred, anger, resentment, that baggage into the time that should be spent on you. We talked last week in my episode with my partner Zaz, and if you haven't listened, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one after this episode, talked about the importance of values. And I think so many of us end up in jobs and paths that we maybe didn't even anticipate. Or maybe you're like Cass, where you know that there's something else you'd rather be doing. In Cass's case, she's working retail, but she deeply knows that her path is in the creative arts, in writing. And something you said, Cass, stood out to me. You said that your partner is open to helping support you, go dive into your creative field. You said that you want to make writing work for us, like work for you and your partner. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the author of the book, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert, but she has the most incredible book about writing and creativity and it's called big magic i highly recommend if you are a creative person and you're wondering what you want to do with your life and you know that maybe what you're doing now isn't what you're meant to be doing check out the book big magic by liz gilbert it's actually pretty short book it's a quick listen on audible Uh, And Liz Gilbert herself narrates it, and she's just the most magical narrator. It will infuse you with so much inspiration. So Cass, highly recommend you listen to that one. But in this book, Liz Gilbert talks about how you can't expect your creativity to work for you. She says that we put a lot of pressure on our art. So if you're a painter, if you are a sculptor, If you are a person who loves writing, you could filter this into any creative passion. If you're someone who's a clothing designer, if you love fixing up cars, I don't know, you could fill in any passion and any passion or activity can be creative. That's something I think that's important. It's the spirit with which you do something. And if we put too much pressure on our passions to make us money or be productive, Liz Gilbert thinks that we sort of like kill off whatever living spiritual excitement is there within that gift. So that's something really important to think about. And I think a lot of us are self-sabotaging too. If we don't actually go for it, and really try and put a little bit of effort every single day into the thing that we're passionate about, our creative quote-unquote side hustle. I even hate that word, side hustle, because it's forcing our creative gifts into this capitalistic productivity box that just kills it before it even starts. Try nurturing your creativity, loving it, playing with it a little bit every single day protect it and if you must work another job at the same time which the majority of us do 
leave your work at the door. Try to find ways you can grow and learn in your work. Connect with other people that you work with in a meaningful way. Try to build people up. Try to spread love and connection in the best way you can. Try to use the job that you may not want as your forever job as a way for you to practice your self-development. As I told you in the beginning of this, the work environment is like emotion regulation boot camp. And if you can keep in mind some of the things that I've shared with you already in this first part of this episode, I think it will really help you. And as always, remember that you're not alone. This is a huge issue that so many people struggle with. It's about as universal as it can get. So I've received these work-related emails quite a bit of time ago. I've been sitting on these voicemails. A couple of weeks ago, I went through all the voicemails that I have right now, and there are a ton. And I categorized them into topics. And this work-related voicemail space has just been kind of sitting and percolating in my to-do list inbox content calendar for the podcast because I wanted to wait until I had just the right thing to say because I could address voicemail by voicemail and give advice but I want to provide as always the deeper underlying message of it all and synchronistically I came across the website of a man named Paul Graham. And Paul Graham is a programmer, writer, and investor. And in 1995, he and another man named Robert Morris started this company called ViaWeb. It was the very first software as a service company. In other words, it laid the groundwork for all the tech companies that you see now. Software as a service are things like Salesforce, Twitter, Facebook, right? So ViaWeb, Paul Graham's company was acquired by Yahoo in 1998, which eventually became the Yahoo store. And in 2001, for 20 years ago, he started publishing essays on paulgram.com, which now gets around 25 million page views a year. With a few other investors, Paul in 2005 started a company called Y Combinator, which was a brand new startup incubator. And since 2005, Y Combinator, Paul's company has funded over 3,000 startups. And so he was part of starting Airbnb, Dropbox, Reddit. So let's just say he knows what he's doing. He knows what it means to thrive in a work environment and more importantly after reading so many of his essays paul loved and fell in love with computers and math and programming he loved it it's his creative expression now many of us would think look i'm not a math person myself i get hives when i look at a math problem but someone like paul looks at a math problem and sees art He sees a mystery. He sees something he can't help but solve. It's his lifeblood. 
and I've been binging a ton of Paul's essays over the last week and have been incredibly inspired by them. And they're relevant for anyone. You don't have to be a computer programmer. He doesn't write for computer programmers. He writes for the human spirit. And I want to read an essay by Paul Graham called How to Do What You Love. And I think it will be one of the most impactful things you could hear right now if you are struggling with what you want to do with your life If you're struggling with work and feeling like it's not what you're passionate about, if you're scared and you know that you want to start your own business or throw more time into your creative process or even are struggling with understanding what doing what you love even means, I think this essay could help every single person on the planet. And I know that's a big thing to say. But that's how good this essay is. So if you're listening to this somewhere where you can just kind of relax, I encourage you to, instead of trying to multitask while I read this essay to you, listen with your full presence, with your spirit. Because so many of us who struggle with emotion regulation may not have had wise elders that we could go to to get this kind of advice and there is advice from incredible wise elders out there people like paul so let's hear what paul has to say about doing what you love to do something well you have to like it That idea is not exactly novel. We've got it down to four words, do what you love. But it's not enough to tell people that. Doing what you love is complicated. The very idea is foreign to what most of us learn as kids. When I was a kid, it seemed as if work and fun were opposites by definition. Life had two states. Some of the time, adults were making you do things, and that was called work, and the rest of the time, you could do what you wanted, and that was called playing. Occasionally, the things adults made you do were fun, just as occasionally playing wasn't, for example, if you fell and hurt yourself. But except for those few anomalous cases, work was pretty much defined as not fun. And it did not seem to be an accident. School, it was implied, was tedious because it was a preparation for grown-up work. The world was then divided into two groups, grown-ups and kids. Grown-ups, like some kind of cursed race, had to work. Kids didn't. But they did have to go to school, which was like a dilute version of work meant to prepare us for the real thing. Much as we disliked school... The grown-ups all agreed that grown-up work was worse and that we had it easy as kids. Teachers in particular all seemed to believe implicitly that work was not fun, which is not surprising. Work wasn't fun for most of them. Why did we have to memorize state capitals instead of playing dodgeball? For the same reason, they had to watch over a bunch of kids instead of laying on a beach. You couldn't just do what you wanted. 
I'm not saying we should let little kids do whatever they want. They may have to be made to work on certain things, but if we make kids work on dull stuff, it might be wise to tell them that tediousness is not the defining quality of work, and instead that the reason they have to work on dull stuff now is so they can work on more interesting stuff later. Once when I was about 9 or 10, my father told me I could be whatever I wanted when I grew up, so long as I enjoyed it. I remember that precisely because it seemed so anomalous. It was like being told to use dry water. Whatever I thought he meant, I didn't think he meant work could literally be fun. Fun like playing. It took me years to grasp that. By high school, the prospect of an actual job was on the horizon. Adults would sometimes come to speak to us about their work, or we would go see them at their work. It was always understood that they enjoyed what they did. In retrospect, I think one may have the private jet pilot, but I don't think the bank manager actually did. The main reason they all acted as if they enjoyed their work was presumably the upper middle class convention that you're supposed to. It would not merely be bad for your career to say that you hated your job, but a social faux pas. Why is it conventional to pretend you like what you do? The first sentence of this essay explains that. If you have to like something to do it well, then the most successful people will all like what they do. That's where the upper middle class tradition comes from. Just as houses all over America are full of chairs that are, without the owners even knowing it, nth degree imitations of chairs designed 250 years ago for French kings, Conventional attitudes about work are, without the owners even knowing it, nth degree imitations of the attitudes of people who have done great things. What a recipe for alienation. By the time they reach an age to think about what they'd like to do, most kids have been thoroughly misled about the idea of loving one's work. School has trained them to regard work as an unpleasant duty. Having a job is said to be even more onerous than schoolwork. And yet all the adults claim to like what they do. You can't blame kids for thinking, I am not like these people. I am not suited to this world. I won't interrupt this essay too many times because it's so good, but I want to take a sidebar here because I think he makes a really profound point here. And I think so many of us still feel this way as adults, this feeling of like, am I the only one feeling these feelings? Is everyone just pretending to like what they do? I think a lot more people are doing that than you're aware of. So if you're feeling this feeling that kids feel, I'm not like other people. I guess I'm just not suited. I'm not cut out for this. It's because I think a lot of people have gotten really good at repressing things and also self-denial. And many of us who struggle with emotion regulation, for better or worse, <laughs> we it's almost like we're incapable of shutting these natural reactions down. But what we're not great at is managing them and creating a plan to get ourselves out of situations that may not be ideal. So let's continue on with the essay. Actually, kids have been told three lies. The stuff they've been taught to regard as work in school is not real work. Grown-up work 
is not necessarily worse than schoolwork, and many of the adults around them are lying when they say they like what they do. The most dangerous liars can actually be the kids' own parents. If you take a boring job to give your family a high standard of living, as so many people do, you risk infecting your kids with the idea that work is boring. Maybe it would be better for kids in this one case if parents were not so unselfish. A parent who set an example of loving their work might actually help their kids more than an expensive house. It wasn't until I was in college that the idea of work finally broke free from the idea of making a living. Then the important question became not how to make money, but what to work on. The definition of work was now to make some original contribution to the world and in the process, not to starve. But after the habit of so many years, my idea of work still included a large component of pain. Work still seemed to require discipline because only hard problems yielded grand results and hard problems couldn't literally be fun. Surely one had to force oneself to work on them. If you think something's supposed to hurt, you're less likely to notice if you're doing it wrong. That about sums up my experience of graduate school. How much are you supposed to like what you do? Unless you know that, you don't know when to stop searching. And if, like most people, you underestimate it, you'll tend to stop searching too early you'll end up doing something chosen for you by your parents or your desire to make money or prestige or sheer inertia. Here's an upper bound. Do what you love doesn't mean do what you'd like to do most this second. Even Einstein probably had moments when he wanted to have a cup of coffee but told himself he ought to finish what he was working on first. It used to perplex me when I read about people who liked what they did so much that there was nothing they'd rather do. There didn't seem to be any sort of work I liked that much. If I had a choice of A, spending the next hour working on something, or B, be teleported to Rome and spend the next hour wandering around, was there any sort of work I'd prefer to that? Honestly, no. But the fact is, almost anyone would rather at any given moment, float around in the Caribbean, have sex, or eat some delicious food, then work on hard problems. The rule about doing what you love assumes a certain length of time. It doesn't mean do what will make you happiest this second, but what will make you happiest over some longer period, like a week or a month. Unproductive pleasures Paul eventually. After a while, you get tired of lying on the beach. If you want to stay happy, you have to do something. As a lower bound, you have to like your work more than any unproductive pleasure. You have to like what you do enough that the concept of spare time seems mistaken, which is not to say you have to spend all your time working. You can only work so much before you get tired and start to screw up then you want to do something else, even something mindless. But you don't regard this time as the prize and the time you spend working as the pain you endure to earn it. 
I put the lower bound there for practical reasons. If your work is not your favorite thing to do, you'll have terrible problems with procrastination. You'll have to force yourself to work. And when you resort to that, the results are distinctly inferior. To be happy, I think you have to be doing something you not only enjoy, but admire. You have to be able to say at the end, wow, that's pretty cool. This doesn't mean you have to make something. If you learn how to hang glide or speak a foreign language fluently, that will be enough to make you safe for a while at least. Wow, that's pretty cool. What there has to be is a test. So the one thing that falls short of the standard, I think, is reading books. Except for some books in math and the hard sciences, there's no test of how well you've read a book. And that's why merely reading books doesn't quite feel like work. You have to do something with what you've read to feel productive. I think the best test is what Gino Lee taught me. To try to do things that would make your friends say, wow but it probably wouldn't start to work properly until about age 22 because most people haven't had a big enough sample to pick friends from before then. What you should not do, I think, is worry about the opinion of anyone beyond your friends. You shouldn't worry about prestige. Prestige is the opinion of the rest of the world. When you can ask the opinions of people whose judgment you respect, what does it add to consider the opinions of people you don't even know? This is easy advice to give. It's hard to follow, especially when you're young. Prestige is like a powerful magnet that warps even your beliefs about what you enjoy. It causes you to work not on what you like, but what you'd like to like. That's what leads people to try to write novels, for example. They like reading novels. They notice that people who write them win Nobel Prizes. What could be more wonderful, they think, than to be a novelist? But liking the idea of being a novelist is not enough. You have to like the actual work of novel writing. If you're going to be good at it, you have to like making up elaborate lies. Prestige is just fossilized inspiration. If you do anything well enough, you'll make it prestigious. Plenty of things we now consider prestigious were anything but at first. Jazz comes to mind, though almost any established art form would do. So just do what you like, and the prestige will take care of itself. Prestige is especially dangerous to the ambitious, If you want to make ambitious people waste their time on errands, the best way to do it is to bait the hook with prestige. That's the recipe for getting people to give talks, write forwards, serve on committees, be department heads, and so on. It might be a good rule simply to avoid any prestigious task. If it didn't suck, they wouldn't have had to make it prestigious. I love this part and I'm going to take a tiny little break because I feel like what he just said really addresses the first voicemail that I played from Cass. She talked about how much she struggles with this fear of rejection, tying her self-worth to her work and this lack of identity and this need for validation echoed in the other voicemails that we played. 
This is prestige, right? Thinking about the opinions of others and what other people will think. This is why it's so important to release the need from the opinions of other people and especially other people you don't even know that don't know you. So Paul continues by writing, Similarly, if you admire two kinds of work equally, but one is more prestigious, you should probably choose the one that is less prestigious. Your opinions about what's admirable are always going to be slightly influenced by prestige. So if the two seem equal to you, you probably have more genuine admiration for the less prestigious one. The other big force leading people astray is money. Money by itself isn't that dangerous. When something pays well, but is regarded with contempt, like telemarketing or prostitution or personal injury litigation, ambitious people typically aren't tempted to take this type of work up. That kind of work ends up being done by people who are, quote, just trying to make a living. It's best to avoid any field whose practitioners say this. The danger is when money is combined with prestige, as in, say, corporate law or medicine. A comparatively safe and prosperous career with some automatic baseline prestige is dangerously tempting to someone young who hasn't thought much about what they really like to do. The test of whether people love what they do is whether they do it even if they weren't paid for it, even if they had to work at another job to make a living. How many corporate lawyers would do their current work if they had to do it for free, in their spare time, and take day jobs as waiters to support themselves? This test is especially helpful in deciding between different kinds of academic work, because fields vary greatly in this respect. Most good mathematicians would work on math even if there were no jobs as math professors, whereas in the departments at the other end of the spectrum, the availability of teaching jobs as the driver. People would rather be English professors than work in ad agencies, and publishing papers is the way you compete for such jobs. Math would happen without math departments, but it is the existence of English majors and therefore jobs teaching them that calls into being those thousands of dreary papers about identity and the novels of Conrad. No one does that kind of thing for fun. The advice of parents will tend to err on the side of money. It seems safe to say that there are more undergrads who want to be novelists and whose parents want them to be doctors than who want to be doctors and whose parents want them to be novelists. The kids think their parents are being materialistic. Not necessarily. All parents tend to be more conservative for their kids than they would be for themselves simply because as parents, they share risks more than rewards. If your eight-year-old son decides to climb a tall tree, or your teenage daughter decides to date the local bad boy, you won't get a share in the excitement. But if your son falls, or your daughter gets pregnant, you'll have to deal with the consequences. With such powerful forces leading us astray, it's not surprising we find it so hard to discover what we like to work on. Most people are doomed in childhood by accepting the axiom that work equals pain. Those who escape this are nearly all lured onto the rocks by prestige or money. How many even discover something that they love to work on? A few hundred thousand, perhaps, out of billions of people. 
It's hard to find work you love. It must be if so few do. So don't underestimate this task and don't feel bad if you haven't succeeded yet. In fact, if you admit to yourself that you're discontented, you're a step ahead of most people who are still in denial. If you're surrounded by colleagues who claim to enjoy work that you find contemptible, odds are they're lying to themselves. Not necessarily, but probably. Although doing great work takes less discipline than people think, because the way to do great work is find something you like so much that you don't have to force yourself to do it, finding work you love does usually require discipline. Some people are lucky enough to know what they want to do when they're 12 and just glide along as if they were on railroad tracks, but this seems to be the exception. More often, people who do great things have careers with the trajectory of a ping pong ball. They go to school to study A, drop out, get a job doing B, and then become famous for C after randomly taking it up on the side. Sometimes jumping from one sort of work to another is a sign of energy, and sometimes it's a sign of laziness. Are you dropping out, or are you boldly carving a new path? You often can't tell yourself. Plenty of people who will later do great things seem to be disappointments early on when they're trying to find their niche. Is there some sort of test you can use to keep yourself honest? One is to try to do a good job at whatever you're doing, even if you don't like it. Then at least you'll know that you're not using dissatisfaction as an excuse for being lazy. Perhaps, more importantly, you'll get into the habit of doing everything you do well. Another test you can use is this. Always produce. For example, if you have a day job that you don't take seriously because you plan to be a novelist, are you producing? Are you writing pages of fiction, however bad they may be? As long as you're producing, you'll know you're not merely using the hazy vision of the grand novel you plan to write one day as an opiate. The view of it will be obstructed by the all-too-palpably-flawed once you're actually writing. Always produce is also a heuristic for finding the work you love. If you subject yourself to that constraint, it will automatically push you away from things you think you're supposed to work on towards things you actually like. Always produce will discover your life's work the way water, with the aid of gravity, finds the hole in your roof. Of course, figuring out what you like to work on doesn't mean you get to work on it. That's a separate question. And if you're ambitious, you have to keep them separate. You have to make a conscious effort to keep your ideas about what you want from being contaminated by what seems possible. It's painful to keep them apart because it's painful to observe the gap between them. So most people preemptively lower their expectations. For example, if you ask random people on the street if they'd like to be able to draw like Leonardo da Vinci, you'd find that most would say something like, oh, I can't draw. This is more of a statement of intention than fact. It means I'm not even going to try to draw. 
Because the fact is, if you took a random person off the street and somehow got them to work as hard as they possibly could at drawing for the next 20 years, they'd get surprisingly far. But it would require a great moral effort. It would mean staring failure in the eye every day for years. And so to protect themselves, people say, I can't. Another related line you often hear is that not everyone can do work they love. Someone has to do the unpleasant jobs. Really? How do you make them? In the US, the only mechanism for forcing people to do unpleasant jobs is the draft, and that hasn't been invoked for over 30 years. All we can do is encourage people to do unpleasant work with money and prestige. If there's something people still won't do, it seems as if society just has to make do without. That's what happened with domestic servants. For millennia, that was the example of a job someone has to do, be a servant. And yet, in the mid-20th century, servants practically disappeared in rich countries, and the rich have just had to do without. So while there may be some things someone has to do, there's a good chance anyone saying that about a particular job is mistaken. Most unpleasant jobs would either get automated or go undone if no one were willing to do them. There's another sense of not everyone can do the work they love that's all too true, however. One does have to make a living, and it's hard to get paid for doing the work you love. There are two routes to that destination. The organic route, as you become more eminent, gradually to increase the parts of your job that you like at the expense of those you don't. The two-job route, to work at things you don't like, to get money, to work on the things you do. The organic route is more common. It happens naturally to anyone who does good work. A young architect has to take whatever work he can get, but if he does well, he'll gradually be in a position to pick and choose among the projects he's most passionate about. The disadvantage of this route is that it's slow and uncertain. Even tenure is not real freedom. The two-job route has several variants depending on how long you work for money at a time. At one extreme is the, quote, day job, where you work regular hours at one job to make money and work on what you love in your spare time. At the other extreme, you work at something until you make enough not to have to work for money again. The two-job route is less common than the organic route because it requires a deliberate choice. It's also more dangerous. Life tends to get more expensive as you get older, so it's easy to get sucked into working longer than you expected at the money job. Or still, anything you work on changes you. If you work too long on tedious stuff, it will rot your brain. And the best paying jobs are most dangerous because they require your full attention. The advantage of the two-job route is that it lets you jump over obstacles. The landscape of possible jobs isn't flat. There are walls of varying heights between different kinds of work. The trick of maximizing the parts of your job that you like can get you from architecture to product design, but not probably to music. If you make money doing one thing and then work on another, you have more freedom of choice. So which route should you take? That depends on how sure you are of what you want to do, how good you are at taking orders, how much risk you can stand, and the odds that anyone will pay in your lifetime for what you want to do. 
If you're sure of the general area you want to work in and it's something people are likely to pay you for, then you should probably take the organic route. But if you don't know exactly what you want to work on, or don't like to take orders, you may want to take the two-job route, if you can stand the risk. Don't decide too soon. Kids who know early on what they want to do seem impressive, as if they've got the answer to some math question before other kids. They have an answer, certainly, but odds are, it's wrong. A friend of mine who's quite successful as a doctor complains constantly about her job. When people applying to medical school ask her for advice, she wants to shake them and yell, don't do it, but she never does. How did she get into this fix? In high school, she already wanted to be a doctor, and she's so ambitious and determined that she overcame every obstacle along the way, including, unfortunately, not liking it. Now, she has a life chosen for her by a high school kid. When you're young, you're given the impression that you'll get enough information to make each choice before you need to make it, but this is certainly not so with work. When you're deciding what to do, you have to operate on ridiculously incomplete information. Even in college, you get a little idea what various types of work are like. At best, you may have a couple internships, but not all jobs offer internships, and those that do don't teach you much more about the work than being a bat boy teaches you about playing baseball. In the design of lives, as in the design of most other things, you get better results if you use flexible media. So unless you're fairly sure of what you want to do, your best bet may be to choose a type of work that could turn into either an organic or two-job career. That was probably part of the reason I chose computers. You can be a professor, or make a lot of money, or morph it into any number of other kinds of work. It's also wise early on to seek jobs that let you do many different things, so that you can learn faster what various kinds of work are like. Conversely, the extreme version of the two-job route is dangerous because it teaches you so little about what you like. If you work hard at being a bond trader for 10 years, thinking that you'll quit and write novels when you have enough money, what happens when you quit and then discover that you actually don't like writing novels? Most people would say, I'd take that problem, give me a million dollars and I'll figure out what to do. But it's harder than it looks. Constraints give your life shape. Remove them and most people have no idea what to do. Look at what happens to those who win lotteries or inherit money. Much as everyone thinks they want financial security, the happiest people are not those who have it, but those who like what they do. So a plan that promises freedom at the expense of knowing what to do with it may not be as good as it seems. Whichever route you take, expect a struggle. Finding work you love is very difficult. Most people fail. Even if you succeed, it's rare to be free to work on what you want until your 30s or 40s. But if you have the destination in sight, you'll be more likely to arrive at it. If you know you can love work, you're in the home stretch. And if you know what work you love, you're practically already there.
So that's the end of the essay. If you want to read it again or share it with someone, I'm going to include the link to it in the show notes. I hope that this gives you some food for thought. Another person I started following on Twitter recently is named Billy Oppenheimer, and his Twitter is BP Oppenheimer. I've retweeted him quite a bit on my Twitter, so if you want to go and find these tweets, you can just go to Twitter and find me at BFTBpod. But Billy Oppenheimer is the writing and research assistant to Ryan Holiday, who is another author I love, and he's the creator of the Daily Stoic YouTube channel, another great follow that I highly recommend. Ryan talks a lot about Stoic philosophy, and Stoic philosophy is, I think, one of the best kept secrets of recovery for anyone who struggles with emotion dysregulation. So in any case, Billy often tweets some really helpful things. And recently, and this one is from November 26th, 2022, he tweeted this really long, beautiful thread titled 12 Habits and Principles for Doing Your Best Creative Work from the mysterious and magical music producer Rick Rubin. So for those of you, again, loyal listeners, are fans of Zaz, my partner, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. Zaz is obsessed with Rick Rubin and for good reason. So Frederick J or Rick Rubin is an American record producer. He is a former co-president of Columbia Records. And along with Russell Simmons, he's the co-founder of Def Jam Recordings. And he also established American Recordings. He's about 59 years old now. He was born in 1963. He is a powerhouse. Anyone who's anyone in the music industry will know exactly who Rick Rubin is. I encourage you to look up a picture of him because he is just the most majestic. He looks like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Seriously. The longest. He looks like Gandalf the Grey for my fellow nerds out there. Long, like speckled gray beard wild crazy hair and he's one of the most inspirational people to follow and listen to speak about creativity in general so let's hear from billy oppenheimer this conglomeration of tips and tricks about how to do your best creative work and that's what i'll leave you with today so the first one is make what you want to exist Rick Rubin loved going to hip-hop clubs. He began making hip-hop albums because the hip-hop albums at the time didn't sound like the music in the clubs. He said, I just try to make my favorite music. I make what I want to exist. His next tip is, never judge the description of an idea. If I describe to you an idea I'm envisioning, what you envision will be different from what I'm envisioning. So Rick Rubin says, quote, So we never judge an idea based on the description of the idea. It's always, show it to me. Let me hear it. The next tip, go fishing. LL Cool J once asked Rick Rubin, what increases the odds of writing a good song? Rick Rubin says, write tons of songs. You might need to write a thousand songs to get 10 good ones. It's like fishing, he says. The more often you go fishing, the better your odds are 
of catching a big fish. Tip number four from Rick Rubin, less is more. On the first album he produced, Rubin took the credit reduced by Rick Rubin, not produced by Rick Rubin. A quote from him here, it says, I like to strip things down to their essence. Usually the more elements there are, he says, the less substance there is. The next tip, don't be for everyone. One of Rubin's greatest mottos is, the best art divides the audience. He says, if you put out a record and half the people who hear it absolutely love it and half the people who hear it absolutely hate it, you've done well. You're pushing boundaries. The next tip here is submerge yourself in great art. Rubin reads the great novels and watches the great movies. He goes to museums. He drives around just to look at beautiful scenery, nature, and architecture. Use the inspiration of other artists, he says. Submerge yourself in the greatest works of all time. Tip seven is maximize what makes you different. Most music producers and record labels think about shaping songs to fit on the radio. Rubin thinks about maximizing what makes an artist different than everybody else on the radio. The closer you get to what makes you, you, the better. Tip number eight, create the environment. There's a dock on Rubin's studio. Before artists arrive, the white walls are repainted. The mixing board's dusted. The floor is polished. You can't make creativity happen, Rubin says, but you can create an environment that is conducive to it happening. Tip number nine is have no expectations. Rubin started Def Jam recordings in his dorm room. Asked if he thought the DJ logo would go on to be so iconic, he said, I never thought anyone would see it. There was no expectations. I've always just done things out of the love of doing them. Tip number 10 is just show up. The creative process is like fishing, Ruben likes to say. You can go out fishing, but you can't say, I'm going to catch three big fish today. We have very little control over the creative process, he says. So just like a fisherman, just show up every day. Tip number 11, you can't do it alone. Ruben has worked with Johnny Cash, Eminem, Adele, Kendrick Lamar, Tom Petty, the list goes on. They all say some version of, Rick Rubin brought out the best in me. He's like a song doctor. I couldn't have done it without him. Even the greats need help. And the final tip, number 12, just try to be better than you were. Rick Rubin said most artists he work with, even the greatest in the world, struggle with self-doubt. To overcome, Ruben tells them, make it your goal just to be better than you were. Compete only with yourself. Rick Rubin says this also about self-doubt. Compete only with yourself. If you say, I don't want to write unless I can write better than the Beatles, that's a hard road. But if you say, I want to write a better song today than I wrote yesterday, that can be done. So to summarize these tips, go fishing, less is more, just show up, you can't do it alone, have no expectations, create the environment, don't try to be for everyone, make what you want to exist, 
submerge yourself in great art. Try to be better than you were the day before. Maximize what makes you different and never judge the description of an idea. So I hope all of this helps you today because it could be really easy just to take listener questions about struggling at work and give you coping skills on how to ride the waves of these big feelings and that's really important. But I'm hoping that by sharing these tips from Rick Rubin, by sharing this essay by Paul Graham, and by sharing some wisdom I received from the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, it helps you actually dive under the hood to the core issue. Yes, we have to work to make a living, but it's also really important to be dedicating parts of our lives to identifying and finding what our core values are, what makes us tick, what is the work that we're dying to work on, What is our creative soul calling us to do? If you're stuck in a job you don't like very much right now, especially if you're younger, in your teens and 20s, don't lose faith. Use the work environments that you find yourself in now that may not be what you want to do for the long term as fuel for your self-development growth. Try your best to use these, as I mentioned before, as boot camps how can you learn to bring the best of you to these roles while you're making plans for other things how can you do the best you can do while you're there bring other people up share your light you are a deeply sensitive beautiful creative human being how can you bring that to what you're doing in your day-to-day work across the time that i've been growing up I've worked as a waitress, I've worked in fast food, making fries, I have worked as an intern in a press office, I've worked in fashion, I've worked in tech, I dabbled in bottle service and working in really skeezy like dark karaoke rooms in LA, I've run the gamut of doing things. And only now am I really starting to understand what doing what you love means at the age of 33. Work and doing things that I wasn't passionate about sent me into similar spirals as these voicemails that I received and as all the DMs and emails I received. I love recording this podcast for you. Whether I get paid for it or not, I love doing it. It gives me energy. Sure, I have days where I'm PMSE or tired and I let myself get burnt out and I don't want to do anything really. But the moment that I sit down in front of this microphone and actually start working, I realize, oh my God, I love doing this. I'm, my cup is getting full. Zaz sits down and records a podcast. And while he loves answering your questions, he said he finds being on a podcast and would find working on a podcast incredibly draining. And he's like, I don't know how you do it. So much work. I don't feel that way. I love doing it. It fills me up. Find what you love because it's there. And it's probably like niggling at the back of your head. Like, you know what it is. 
So start doing it. Do it for little bits of time. One of the best pieces of advice I got is if you're kind of in self-sabotage mode and you're like really not feeling like you want to do something, do it for just 15 minutes. Set a timer and nine times out of 10, once you start doing it, if it's something you like doing, you will actually do it for longer than 15 minutes. But if you really are in a burned out day and you've only done it for 15 minutes, at least you can say you've done something. Try to do that with something that you're passionate about. I hope this was helpful for you. Over on the premium version of the podcast, we are going to be continuing exploring the hero's journey, which is a series of guided visualization exercises that allow us to tap more deeply into our creativity, into our sense of zooming out, spirituality, non-religious spirituality, I might add, and many of my subscribers are finding it really helpful. So if you are interested in joining along in the journey, you can go ahead and go to backfromtheborderline.com and click unlock premium access, or you can open up the show notes, which is just the episode description of this very episode you're listening to right now, and you can click the link at the bottom. Also in the episode description, I will be linking Paul's essay. I'll link to Billy's Twitter in case you want to scroll through his tweets because there are gems in there. Not a big fan of Twitter myself, but there are some people I follow on there that I constantly get an incredible amount of value from, and Billy is one of those. And I will also link to Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, so that you can check those out. If you want to submit a voicemail, you can do that by going to backfromtheborderline.com and clicking that cute little microphone icon at the bottom of the screen. And until next week, I'm sending you huge hugs, all the love in my heart, and I hope you have a fantastic week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.